Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This podcast is intended to be listened to in order, starting at episode one, then two, and so on. This is episode three, You're a Dead Man. Previously on Dakota Spotlight. Um, They said he was parked, and while he was parked there, he passed out and fell out of the truck and froze to death. Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kurtzmeyers ruled out foul play as a cause of death for 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Allen, found dead outside his vehicle on December 27th. The sheriff added that alcohol played a role in Newberry's death. Do you feel like you have a satisfactory answer for how your father died? No, I don't. And then you have a family that looks at it, and it's typed on this neat paper, and there's this official seal, and they say, I guess they know what they're doing. The information that Donna gave me was that there had been some type of altercation, possibly. I think it's been proven that Masello has gotten it wrong before, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't put it past it to be wrong again. In this episode, we will learn a little bit about the place where Victor Newberry lived and died, and then we will meet two of his good friends, Ray and Tina Havelock of Glenola, North Dakota. I got their names from Johnny Newberry, Victor's son. Once you hear what they had to say, you too will understand why Phil believes that persons connected with organized crime might have had something to do with Victor's death. Street dances and small-town festivals are popular on the prairie, and for a few days each September, people gather in Glenola, North Dakota, to celebrate that town's Harvest Fest. In 2018, throughout most of this event, I hung around Glenola with the hopes of learning more about Victor. I spent those autumn days and nights both enjoying the activities there, but also searching for Victor's friends and acquaintances, or anyone else who might teach me more about him and this little place on the big prairie. What can you tell me about Victor? Victor was a very nice guy. He'd see you on the street. He'd stop and he'd talk to you. I mean, we mostly met him in the bars. And, I mean, we'd sit there and talk to him. He was a very nice, very intelligent. He was a very intelligent guy. Nobody really knows what exactly happened, but they probably just knocked him out or something, and he just froze to death, you know, to be honest with you. I don't know who did it or what did it or speculations. I'm not going to say no names or anything, but... Kind of a bad deal, you know. He was a nice guy, though, that's for sure. What's your name? Myron. Victor, or the first time you heard about anything? Well, I heard what everybody else heard, and 
I wasn't downtown that night or anything, so I don't know. But uh, I just heard they found him dead, and that there was tracks, multiple sets of tracks, and and it seems kind of weird that no matter what happened, that he got out of his truck or whatever and hit his head that hard that he would have passed away, you know. And I feel that back when that thing happened that it seemed like it was kind of swept under the rug, you know, that there wasn't as much that happened as should have happened, you know. Yeah, there's there was a lot of things that are, I mean, you're in the snow, you have footprints, you have all this stuff, and this is the only thing, that's the kind of stuff that you hear about, you know, if you want to talk about that. So you hear all these things, and you would think that there would be a big investigation, but it never really played out that way. So, I don't know. Some people are more important than others, maybe, I don't know. Just doesn't seem like anybody really cared. One of the entertainers there was a man named Clyde Bowman, a North Dakota native who travels all over the state and beyond, bringing his music and humor to towns both big and small. Every size city you can think of. I've done shows in Chicago, San Diego, and Washington, D.C., and I've done shows in towns like Abercrombie and Huff that have 100 people or fewer. I'm a classically trained tenor, and I have a lot of experience uh, uh, with classical repertoire. People might say opera. The other thing that I do in conjunction with, with my song programs is a, uh, is a, a farm-themed music and comedy act with my, with my character uh, Milo Hotzenbieler, who is kind of an Elvis Presley in overalls. He is a, he's a dairy farmer from the town of Strasbourg, where Lawrence Welk came from, and he fancies himself to be the next the, the next Elvis, really. He's as dumb as a rock, but he's also very sincere. And this is great. By the looks of the crowd, I think we have half the town here. This is tremendous. Well, and I'm glad to see it. And some people from out of town, too. There's one lady over here said she's from Hebrew. I just want you to know that. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Victor's last home, Glenola, North Dakota, resides in Morton County, and if you examine the boundaries of Morton County on a map, you will realize that the figure drawn by those county borders unmistakably resembles nothing other than a small pistol, perhaps a defiant derringer pointed west. The handle of this pistol is home to the town of Mandan in the east, nudged up against the Missouri River where Lewis and Clark once traveled. The tip of the barrel is home to Hebron, North Dakota, and only a few miles southeast of that lies Glen Ullen. Glen Ullen and much of western Morton County consist of ranching and farming, 
But sometimes it feels like this county has an identity crisis, or that the county suffers from schizophrenia. For one thing, the population of Morton County is drastically lopsided between east and west. In the east, if you squish together the twin towns separated by the Missouri, Bismarck, and Mandan, which people often refer to as Bisman, you get a sum total of almost 100,000 people. But from there, drive less than one hour in any direction, and suddenly you are somewhere else completely out in the agricultural world of rural America, in tiny towns like Glen Ullen. Also somewhat schizophrenic, or at least disorienting, is the time of day out here. The citizens of Glen Ullen are capable of traveling through time. Or at least they can travel one hour back in time almost instantly because the western border of Morton County is also a border between central time zone and mountain time zone. When making appointments to meet someone, it's vital to indicate which time zone you're referring to. That is, unless you want to spend an hour of your life sitting in an empty coffee shop wondering where the hell everyone is. But living on the edge of time has its advantages too. A 10-minute drive west from Glen Ullen will get you another business hour out of your day, or the chance to find a bar that's open just a little longer. Victor lived his last few years in this spot, nudged right up against this invisible membrane of time, sometimes working on one side of it during the day, and then sleeping back on the other side again at night, lending hours to himself back and forth, and living on borrowed time. As I began to learn a little bit about him, I couldn't help wondering if Victor didn't live this way on purpose, and if he wasn't secretly satisfied with it all. In this place where lifestyles can fluctuate almost fluidly between city mouse and country mouse, and where time seesaws back and forth with confusion, this man could essentially live each day a little bit here and a little bit there. And then at night, within the defiant perimeters of the Morton County pistol, he could fall asleep without ever having to reveal completely or fully to anyone who he was, nor when or where he had been. What you need to understand is that the western side of North Dakota is quite different from the eastern side of the state, which is where I live now. This is Becca Opp. Becca grew up in Glen Ullen and now lives in Fargo. She was home for the weekend to enjoy the Harvest Fest. The eastern side of the state is very flat and very green, but the closer you get toward the center of the state, you start to see more hills and some more rolling valleys, fields of crops, and the farther west you go, the more um, it's big rocky buttes, dirt and gravel roads, very few trees, unfortunately. (laughs) Western North Dakota is a lot more rural, where everybody knows everybody. It's kind of expected when you live in a small town, everybody knows pretty much everything, and they know your family history going back a couple of generations. It's kind of nice in a way when something big happens, people are really quick to come together. Um, I think there are two kind of things that are really central to that and those are churches and bars the two places where people congregate after a long day or a week of work and it's really important for those small towns like Glen Ullen to have a restaurant or a bar currently Glen Ullen um, I don't believe we have a restaurant right now we still have an operating bar though and I'm if there ever comes a day where that goes away, it'll be really sad. I think it's a very important um, thing for people to have to bring them together. Thanks! I shut myself off. (laughs) 
On a Sunday afternoon, I met with Ray Havaluk and finally got some of the explanations and some of the answers that I'd been looking for. Although he did not know anything about an altercation or fight the night before Victor died, he had a wealth of other information that he was willing to share. He was even able to help me understand where the Boston mob story came from. By the end of my meeting with Ray, I understood that it wasn't that people didn't want to tell me anything, it was more likely that they were afraid to say anything. Ray Havaluk proved to be different. When the entertainer Clyde Bowman had told me earlier about life in the Dakotas, he said that one of the benefits of living out here is that people in small towns were accountable to each other. A big part of me disagreed with Clyde. Until that moment, I felt that what I was experiencing was the opposite, that people like Phil, who had told me about Victor's death in the first place, were not being accountable. To openly state that you have information about a potential homicide, information you yourself consider to be credible, to believe that you possess such information only to fail to stand by your word when it came time to doing something about it, that, to me, was far from being accountable. And it certainly did not feel respectful to the life of Victor Newberry. Ray Havaluk and his wife Tina contrasted this in what some might call a reckless and dangerous manner, but which I instead will call an accountable manner. There is a Latin phrase which I'm not at all sure how to pronounce because I've never studied Latin, but I'll do my best. It goes something like this. Fiat justitia ruat silum, and it means, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. The mindset being that justice, and perhaps doing the right thing, should supersede just about everything else. In other words, sometimes the heavens need to fall for the right thing to be done. Sometimes doing the right thing causes you to lose your job, or lose money, or you might put yourself in harm's way. A different way of putting it is this. Sometimes, in order to retain your integrity, you risk losing other things. I didn't know if Ray and his wife Tina were aware of that Latin phrase or its English translation, but by the time I left their home, I thought it might as well be painted across their front door. For me, it was a much-needed, refreshing contrast to what I'd been experiencing so far on this journey. I started by asking Ray about Victor as a person and how he got to know him in the first place. The first time I ever laid eyes on him, we were stopped into the local bar in the afternoon and he was sitting in there BSing with Donna and he kind of gave me a funny look like, all right, who's this SOB, you know? <laughs> and just like like I was casing him out or some freaking thing. Were but you? No. <laughs> I just like new face in town. It's like I haven't seen him around before. And about a week or two later, got to BSing with his girlfriend, Donna, and he was looking for some work and I asked him if he wanted to go to work, and I gave him a job. And 
started working for me off and on for well, two or three years, four years, something like that. Ended up becoming one of my best friends. I build homes for a living, remodel garages. He came to work for me and kind of picked up the trade and before you know it, he was turned out to be a one hell of a hand. No nonsense type of guy, just easy going and he believed in a day's work for a day's pay and he just, after work, we'd like to have a couple beers and maybe a shot of Crown and that was the way he was, you know, he just easy go lucky guy, hard working guy, never late for work, never missed a day. I mean, he was, he'd always give me a shit, yeah, sure, make the black man do it. He was a fun guy. I mean, he just, he'd come over here, he was a friend to my kids, and he'd come over here, we'd have 4th of July nights, we'd be shooting off fireworks and stuff like that, and it's just like, I mean, he, he literally became part of my family, actually, you know. A part of his family, perhaps, but Ray admitted that there were things about Victor he could never know or learn. When it came to his personal life, he just really did not. I knew about his sister and his son, his daughters and his grandkids and stuff like that, but he really didn't elaborate a whole lot on his personal life. I asked Ray to tell me about the day Victor died. I heard it the morning he died. Dave or Dan was going out to the farm to where he worked and he seen Victor's vehicle down the ditch and Victor was laying outside his vehicle, dead. He told me that Victor sometimes worked as a bartender at one of two downtown bars in Glen Ullen. In fact, Victor had been tending bar on the night he died. He worked at JR's bar. Today, JR's has a new owner, and it is now named The Social Club. The bar is in the tiny downtown area of Glen Ullen, next to another bar. The other bar is closed for business these days, but at the time, it was operating under the name Doc's Bar. It was the evening of December 26, 2014, the day after Christmas. Victor was tending bar, and then suddenly he was not. He told a friend to watch the bar for him, and then he left, apparently without a jacket or a phone, and he never came back. For Victor that night to leave the bar without a coat or his phone or anything else was just very, very unlike Victor. I mean, he always had his coat and he always had his phone, and for him to leave that stuff behind the bar when he was working at the bar that night and then didn't come back... I don't know. Victor was found dead the next morning, 0.9 miles from the bar, just past a little bridge north of town on a dirt road. His vehicle was down in a fairly deep ditch. I think there was something else that went on. Just didn't sound like him at all to be driving out in that area and be down in the ditch there or whatever. There's, It was very unlike Victor to do something like that. I mean, he was been in North Dakota for quite a few years, and he knows what the winters are like, and he, he dressed for it. And the victor, if he would have went down that ditch and got stuck, he would have walked that quarter mile. I mean, he would have been cold, but he would have walked. He would not have stayed there. I told Ray what Johnny had said about Victor's ability to handle alcohol. I've sat here, and him and I would drink a, a bottle of Crown together and think nothing of it. I mean, I can handle my booze pretty well, too. And Victor, he, when he had a little buzz going, you, you knew it, but he, he could still hand, handle his booze. 
Ray told me what he thought had happened to Victor, based on all the things he had heard over the last four years. Myself, I personally think there was fault play involved, but I heard that the cops said he died from or the coroner's report or whatever was carbon monoxide poisoning. But I believe he was down in that ditch and some way he either knocked his ass out or something and left him there and he woke up to get out and he got outside his vehicle and he was laying beside his vehicle dead. So like it, it's almost like he came to and then he wasn't dead yet but he managed to get his ass out of that vehicle. Finally, with some nervousness actually, I asked Ray if he had heard the rumors that the Boston mob had killed Victor and if so, would he please explain it all? I was nervous, I say, because Honestly, I'd grown weary of other people shutting down when reaching this point of the conversation, and I was about to give up. Ray did not shut down. The Boston thing stemmed from the fact that Victor had a type of nemesis in Glenelg, an enemy, and that person was from Boston, and he had threatened Victor on multiple occasions. That person's name was Henry Palazzo, although Palazzo is not his real name. Perhaps you remember the name Donna Schantz. I got her name from Johnny Newberry, Victor's son. You'll remember that he said that Donna was Victor's ex-girlfriend. What he meant was that she was his ex-girlfriend at the time of his death. They were not dating when he died. When Victor died, Donna was dating Henry Palazzo, and Henry, apparently, had a big problem with the fact that his girlfriend used to date Victor, a man who was half black. I know... From a fact, when Henry started dating Donna and Victor and Donna broke up, there was threats made against Victor back then, where he even came to the point where he came over here and he goes, Ray, let me borrow one of your pistols. I said, Victor, no, you don't want to do shit like that, because he thought shit was going to go down and he just, he wanted some protection. I asked Ray when that had happened. When did Victor ask to borrow a gun to protect himself? Was it the day before he died, a week before, a month before, or when? I also asked him if Victor himself was a violent person. Oh God, that was a year and a half probably before it happened. Victor was not a violent person. By no means was he ever a violent person. Henry and his brother Mike lived in Glenolan, and apparently they would often shoot their mouths off and at least talk tough, but Ray didn't really believe the mafia or mobster thing. So I don't think that he would have been the mafia yet. He would always say that, that oh, I, get, I could have you taken care of and all this shit, you know, he'd, he'd run his mouth like that. Henry or Mike? Or both. both. More, Hen- more Mike than Henry. You know, there's, they're from Boston. They're wicked fucking smart. <laughs> he was, when he got drunk, he was a very prejudiced son of a bitch. I mean, he, we were up at the wet spot one night, me and my wife. The wet spot is another bar in Glen Ellen. Henry was actually calling my wife and wanted to fight me. And I just, you know, and his brother Mike was about the same way. He was a real piece of work, too. But he, they were both loose cannons. A little later, Ray's wife, Tina, would retell the same story. We were up there one day um, at the wet spot, and he said something to Ray, and it was in the afternoon, and all of a sudden he wanted to 
if he wanted to fight me or called me some awful god awful name or whatever i mean i he was scared the shit out of me. he was just an awful man and he didn't care he scared you yeah remember when mike when we were up the wet spot and mike wanted to wanted to hit mike me or, or what was henry it was no it, it was, was mike, mike was calling you but he had that look in his face. He was, I mean, he was right in my face. He was going to hit me. He was, you know, I, I grew up in a very abusive home and I had a, unfortunately, um, had a boyfriend before I met Ray that was, you know, the threats and trying to get away with, from people like that. They just don't let you get away, you know. Um, yeah. I, I just don't. Real piece of work. Yeah. I asked Ray a final question. In his opinion, did Henry have it in him? Could he have killed Victor? Or could he, let's, let's say not, I don't know. Did he have it in him? Oh, yeah. Easily. He threatened me before. Henry. Mike threatened me, too. Mike th- threatened your life? Oh, yeah. You I'm just like... Not particularly, but in so many words, in their drunken state, yeah, they would always say, you're a dead man and shit like that. Dakota Spotlight will be back in a moment. I was just trying to get my head around the potential scenario of interviewing Henry and Mike Palazzo when Ray informed me that I might have my work cut out for me. First of all, Henry is no longer alive. He died about two years after Victor died. A heart attack, they thought. And nobody has seen Mike Palazzo for years. Ray thought he might be in Boston or Florida, but he didn't know. He didn't think anybody knew. Before leaving the Havaluk home, I asked Ray if he had heard any other theories or stories about Victor's death. I heard there was some other people in town, a couple gals and a guy or whatever, and and I I don't know who it was, but Victor he liked to he liked to play, you know. That's that's why his nickname was Dirty Red, you know. He liked to have a little fun with the ladies, you know. So I don't know if that had something to do with these ladies that were in town with somebody or what or what. I have no idea. I'm, I'm all, I'm talking now from speculation from what I've heard. I left Ray's place with answers, but also with new questions. I made a note to look up the criminal history of not just Mike and Henry Palazzo, but also, while I was at it, I might as well look up Victor's criminal background too. Was there a reason that Victor didn't share a lot about his personal life? Was he hiding something? Because Henry is deceased, I knew I could make a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI. If he did have some kind of ties to the mob or mafia, maybe it would show up that way. If you have ever requested public documents, you may already know that it is always easiest to get those documents which were part of a trial or prosecution because... Those documents are basically always part of the public record. But what about documents from cases that never went to trial? Getting those can sometimes be a little tricky. Nevertheless, one afternoon, I picked up the phone and called the Morton County Sheriff's Office and asked 
the helpful office clerk if she could check for any trace of the sheriff's office responding to an altercation in Glen Ellen, North Dakota, on the evening of December 26, 2014. After putting me on hold for a short while, she came back, and to my surprise, she said, Yes, I have something here for you. It's a one-page complaint report, she said. A one-page complaint report for sheriff's officers responding to an altercation at a bar on December 26, 2014 in Glenola, North Dakota. Next time on Dakota Spotlight. Law enforcement are trained to give you a loop around and very much obvious when they are. Yeah, uh, if you do hear something, then you better take it with a grain of salt because there's probably three or four other stories around. I don't think I did because I kind of left alone. Sometimes there's things in a little town you just kind of leave alone. Well, we can't say yes and we can't say no, or it was another runaround. It's like, what's the point of this conversation if there's no answers? You have been listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, the story of Victor Newberry. Music provided graciously by Julia Kent. Visit juliakent.com to learn more about Julia and her amazing work. Dakota Spotlight is produced by Everything Midwestern LLC of North Dakota. My name is James Wollner. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. If you find yourself enjoying this podcast and would like to help support it and maybe make possible a season two, visit dakotaspotlight.com support to find out the many ways you can help out. Fellow podcasters, writers, researchers, investigators, and other curious and restless souls interested in a possible collaboration in the future, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.